Well, at this time, the uh, children are dismissed to the nursery. If uh, you have a child under the age of four, you are welcome to drop them off with the nursery. We have a well-qualified and lovely lady taking care of them, and uh, they will be safe and sound. Well, safe anyway. Uh, And then you are free to um, be with us this morning. Hey, the grave is empty, and your sins are forgiven. Praise the Lord. Um, I'm excited to have this opportunity to be with you this morning um, and to be able to share with you what the Lord has laid on my heart. If you brought a Bible to church, then I ask that you would, at this time, open it up to the book of Ephesians, as we were this morning. And I'm going to do my best to make it through the first seven verses of chapter 3. If you've been coming to Cornerstone Pickwell for any amount of time, you know. We've been in Ephesians for a little while. We're going to be there for a lot while. And it's going to be, uh, at least it has been for me, just a blessing to be able to just get soaked in this book and to just marinate in this book. It's just so wonderful. Um, as you know, this we're, we're, ch- we're into chapter 3, and we're going to be seven verses into chapter 3 this morning. And so far, Paul the Apostle, who's the writer of this book, has told us really only to do one thing. And that one thing that he told us to do so far is to remember the things that he told us already. So he's, he spent two and a half to, th- well, three and change chapters just telling us not what we are to do, but what God has already done for us. And it's just been a wonderful thing uh, for me to be with you in this book. So verse 1 from chapter 3, you can see and follow along with us there on page 674 in the Pew Bible. Here is what Ephesians 3, 1 through 7 says. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, hang on to that phrase, we're going to come back to that phrase, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, same one in verse 4, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your name is holy. And without Jesus, you are altogether unapproachable. And I thank you that you have sent your son into my world to live as I should have lived, to die as I deserve to die to give himself in my place for my sins in order that I might be reconciled to you. And I ask this morning, Father, that in your power, by your grace, that you would move upon me, your servant, and remove from me distractions, remove from me any hindrances from your word being spoken this morning. I pray that you would give us all ears to hear, give understanding, and allow us to see 
and rejoice in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what that means for us. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to blow life, to breathe life on, on the coals, on the, the dullness of our heart and cause it to spring forth in God-honoring, Christ-exalting fire for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name and for Jesus' praise, Cornerstone said amen. A couple thousand years ago, there was a man named Saul. lived in a tiny town in the Middle East um, called Tarsus. And Saul was a pudgy, bald Jewish guy who, uh, (laughs) he was short, Papa Ed, he was short. He shared the name. It was interesting because he shares the name with the first king of Israel, Saul. And that's ironic because King Saul was very tall, and it's reported that Saul from Tarsus was under five foot. He was a a short man. And he was raised as a good Jewish kid, and and in Tarsus in those days, they had a good school. He He was raised as a Jew. He was educated as a Jew. He was a Roman citizen. When he was about 14 years old, he was sent off to Jerusalem to learn Torah under the eminent teacher of that day named Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee and he taught. He was the best. He would be like the Ivy League school, the Ivy League seminary, if there were such a thing, of the Jewish school of those days. And Paul learned under Gamaliel what it meant to be a Jew, and he understood Torah. And as he grew up, as a young man, he became uh, a zealous Pharisee. He became a, a, a member of the Pharisee, uh, which was a sect of religion, which were the most devoted and the most preeminent religious group. He would later describe himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he's just, he's just all in, this Paul, this Saul. During Saul's time, there was a crisis in the Pharisees' group. You see, there was a man named Yeshua who came from Nazareth who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah and even claimed to be God himself. And that was a problem for the religious order because he started getting all of these followers and he would teach things that they didn't teach. And this was a problem, but they took care of it. They saw to this, that this Yeshua was crucified on a cross. Now, this, is, this wasn't the first time this kind of thing had happened. They had had plenty of false messiahs before. They had put him down without any problem. The problem with this Yeshua guy was that he raised from the dead. He got up from the grave that they put him in. And what's worse is there were people that were saying they saw him alive after he died. And so here in, in, in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, many people were beginning to be followers of this Yeshua of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ. And this was a problem. And so what they did was they hired a young, zealous man named Saul of Tarsus to take care of these Christ followers. And Saul of Tarsus, his job was very simple. He would... He was sort of like a city-to-city bounty hunter. He would just listen to what people were saying about these Christ followers and where they were meeting. And then he would hop on a horse with some guys, and he would go to that city, and he would arrest them. And in doing so, he seemed to be fairly effective. 
I would imagine he approached this as he did everything in his life with a great amount of zeal and enthusiasm and seemed like he had a good amount of success. Well, one day Saul heard about some Christians meeting in the town of Damascus and decided, let's go to Damascus, let's round up these Christians. Well, as you know, he didn't make it to Damascus in one piece. What happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus was uh, nothing less than miraculous. But I'm going to let him tell the rest of the story. Keep your finger there in Ephesians 3 and turn backwards in your Bible to Acts chapter 26. I'm going to let Paul, or Saul rather, tell the story of that fateful day on the road to Damascus. Acts chapter 26, we're going to start in verse 8. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 646. Acts 26, 9, I myself was convinced. Paul is, uh, at this point, he is telling King Agrippa II of why he's enchained by the Jews. And he says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often and in all synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Verse 12. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on a way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. You ready? To appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those to which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Saul of Tarsus, respected Pharisee, died that day on the way to Emmaus when the, when the light of Jesus shone on him and he fell to the ground. And then when he responded to Jesus saying, get up, he responded not as Saul of Tarsus, but Paul the apostle. He died that day and became a new man. And so this Paul became a servant and witness to the Gentiles. He who once persecuted Christians now became one of the greatest among them. And he who cast his vote against them now cast his lot with them. Paul's decision to get up on the road to Damascus cost him everything. It cost him his job. 
It cost him his friends. It cost him his reputation. It would later cost him his health. It would later cost him his freedom. If you follow the life of Paul the Apostle, you find out that he's, he gets stoned with rocks. He gets shipwrecked at sea. He gets adrift at sea. He's imprisoned. He's starved. He's flogged. His face is beaten so badly at one point that it damages his eyesight so badly that at the book, end of the book of Galatians, when he writes, he has to write with big letters because he can't see so well. He's, Paul is almost always sick. In fact, he, tra- he, he travels a lot of times with his own personal doctor and friend, the physician Luke. This Paul the Apostle, this I, Paul of verse 1, were he here this morning, would probably tell you that everything that he gave up and everything that he lost and all of the pain and suffering he endured for the sake of responding to Jesus on the road to Damascus was worth it. It was worth it. In fact, he would say it like this to the Philippians. It's compared to knowing Jesus. That other stuff is garbage. My intention this morning is to show you the radical response of Paul the Apostle to the gospel of Jesus Christ is not radical at all. That when we look at the man, Paul the Apostle, we don't see an extraordinary Christian. What we see is an ordinary Christian who responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The life of Paul is not extraordinary. It ought to be ordinary. That's the kind of response that all of us should have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my intention this morning, and I think we can see that in Ephesians chapter 3. So go ahead and turn back there. I have a three-point sermon this morning. First point, I'm just going to ask why Paul did what he did. Why would a man who had an upstanding reputation among well-to-do folks give up that reputation and that job in order to become what he became? The second question I'm going to ask is, what in the world is this mystery of Christ that he talks about in Ephesians 3, 1, uh, 3, 4, 3, and 7, or 6? And then the third thing is I'm going to unpack Paul's phrase, stewardship of God's grace, in verse 2. And then lastly, I'm going to give you some pastoral concerns about how to steward God's grace, how to steward God's resources, the use and distribution of the resources as they apply to appropriating the gospel in our life. And so it should last about 45 minutes, and uh, then we're going to take communion, pray, and go home. So for some of us, We're going to hear this message this morning, and I hope that it marks a turning point in our life, that we we read this and we realize what God expects of us and the response that God expects from the gospel in our life, and we finally respond to the actual call of God in our life. For some of us, maybe this won't mean anything. Either way, my prayer is this morning that the Holy Spirit would stir our hearts And that if you're not a Christian, that you would turn your life over to Jesus and finally realize the actual reason you exist. And if you are a Christian, I pray that you would leave here a little uncomfortable. 
wrestling with questions, specifically what it means to steward God's grace in your life. So that's where we're going. That's how it's teed up. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. For this reason. What, what, what reason is Paul referring to here? What motivated this man, Saul of Tarsus, to exchange the comfortable life of reputation and notoriety to become Paul the Apostle and to live this just an exhausting and disreputable and dangerous life of a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? People don't do things without reason. There's a reason why he had to do these things. What motivated him? Was it money? It wasn't money. We know Paul was broke most of the time. Was it power? It wasn't power. Paul the apostle had a hard time getting Christians to listen to him. He didn't have a whole lot of power. So he didn't exchange that life for power. So what, was, what, 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 what motivated him? And for the answer to that, we'll go backward just, just for a few moments. In the first two chapters in Ephesians, we learned that Jesus is saving folks. Jesus is bringing those who the Bible says are far off and bringing them near. That Jesus is going into places where the gospel is not preached and preaching the gospel and saving people and joining men and women together to become what he calls in chapter 2 the household of God. What we learn later in the Bible is the church. Jesus is building his church. When God came into this world, we were just busy about doing our own things. When Jesus saved you, you were just busy doing your own things, living for yourself, living the way you wanted to live, just stacking up your sin debt against God. And God came into your world and saved you despite you. In spite of you, he saved you. And when he saved you, he gave you a purpose. That purpose was to be united with other brothers and sisters in Christ to become this entity, this organization, the greatest entity and organization the world has ever known. It is called the church. I will build my church, is how Jesus said it when he was on earth. And so Paul, the apostle, is giving up everything that he had in order to become that person, that ambassador of the grace of God to build Jesus' church, to do his part. For this reason, the reason that God is building his church. And so this reason, Paul preaches the gospel. For this reason, that Paul would be beaten with rods and stoned with rocks and shipwrecked at sea, imprisoned. For this reason, And it's because, we learn in Ephesians 5, for this reason, Jesus died. And so if you were to ask Paul, why why would you ever go through all these things? Why would you give your life for the sake of the church? The answer is, because Jesus gave his life for the sake of the church. And our answer must be the same. We ought to be willing to give our life for the sake of of Jesus' church because Jesus gave his life for the sake of his church. Skip down to verse 3. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Hang on to that phrase. 
which was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations, it has now been made known to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Verse 6 explains the mystery. The mystery is Gentiles, that's non-Jews, that's you, that's me, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So it was made known to Paul by the Spirit and the rest of the apostles and prophets. Something that was hidden from previous generations that God revealed to Paul, and he calls it a mystery, which is basically that the Gentiles are being added to the family of God. Gentiles are being saved. Gentiles are being part of the church. This goes back to something we talked about earlier in this series about the mistakes that the that Israel made about understanding their purpose. Remember, they thought they were buckets that God would just pour into them. He would give them promise. He would give them privilege. He would give them miracles. He would give them blessing. And they took that as God must really like me. I'm a bucket. He keeps pouring into my bucket. If you want God to like you, you got to be like me. Come in the bucket. God will pour into your bucket. And God never meant for Israel to be a bucket. He meant for them to be a channel that God would pour into them so that they would pour out. Exodus 19 says that they are to be a priest to the nation. They are to be the one that, 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 to, to, to give the resemblance of what God is like on the earth so that people would come to them to see God. And that's how they would, they, that's what their function was, to be a stream to the nations. But they didn't understand this. And Paul is one of those that God came to and revealed this to. Jesus said this in John 10. He spoke of a sheep of another fold that he was adding to his family. That's us, Jews and Gentiles. Verse 6 says that this mystery is that the Gentiles are then fellow heirs. It's not just Israel that's heir of God's promises. It's Gentiles as well, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Gentiles are being saved. That's the mystery. That God is saving the unsavable. Those who are far off are being brought near. And this is what motivates Paul. This is, his, this is what he lives his life for. Because if you remember in Acts 26, Jesus said, you're going to go to the Gentiles. You're going to tell them to turn from light, from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. You're going to go into those places where the gospel is not preached, where God's name is not named, and you're going to turn folks to Jesus. That's what he lived for. That's what motivates him. That he is saving the unsavable. There's a saving going on. God is saving the unsavable, and so he sends Paul into those places. So there's a saving going on and a sending going on. God is saving the unsavable and sending the unsendable. Buckets and streams. God is saving you to send you. This has always been his purpose. This has always been God's means. I want you to consider next my third point, which is the language that Paul uses concerning his own calling. And uh, I w- for that, I would have you turn back to verse 2 and turn forward to verse 7. Let's read these together. Assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working 
of his power. Now allow me to direct your attention to this interesting phrase in verse 2, which is that Paul has received a stewardship of God's grace. A stewardship of God's grace. That word is, is interesting. Stewardship means uh, a task to manage, a plan to implement. Um, it's administration over something. Or it's just watching over something to make sure that it meets the end, the desired end. It's watching over something and bringing it to its desired completion. So Paul says, God gave me grace in order that I would steward God's grace to its desired end. And it's what's strange about this is how do you manage God's grace? How do you facilitate the grace of God? And you do a, a quick, just a word study and a, and a word survey in the Greek, you find out something interesting, interesting about the way Paul views his calling and, and really about the way we should view God's grace in our lives. And here, here's what you learn. God's grace is to be received and released. God's grace is to be received and released. It's never meant to be received only. That's not stewarding it. It's to be released. It's to be poured into, to pour out. And you'll find that when you receive God's grace and then release God's grace, he will continually pour grace upon grace into your life and you will become the channel that you were called to be. So God saved you to send you. He didn't save you for you. You might be winsome and handsome and talented and just a darn good person. But he didn't save you for those reasons. God didn't save you for you. God saved you for him. When he was on the cross, I don't know what you've been told, but when he was on the cross, he wasn't only thinking of you. He was thinking of obedience to the Father in the garden when he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's what put him on the cross. It wasn't, Nevertheless, not my will, but because I love John Bruce. Your will be done. It was obedience to the Father that put him there. There's a, there's a song we sing sometimes in church. I don't remember the name of it. Um, you guys, what is it? Above all. It's a, it's a lovely song. It's a beautiful song. In this song, it says, there's a lyric in the chorus that says, um, you know, trampled as a rose or something. But then it says, and, and when he was on the cross, he took the fall and thought of me above all. God wasn't thinking of you. He was thinking of God. He was thinking Jesus went to the cross to, for God the Father to receive the glory for saving you. you. You were a part of it, but you weren't the goal of it. Does that make sense? And so we don't sing that song. At least we haven't, right? We haven't. Probably won't. Unless we change some lyrics. We have to get some permission. You're working on the lyrics. All right. Well, good. Because it's a lovely song otherwise. So he saved you. And by the way, the, when that might, that might offend you a little bit, that maybe that Jesus wasn't thinking of you specifically on the cross. 
but he's thinking of the Father. But I'm telling you, there is that, that, that reason, the glory of God on the, in the cross the, the, in saving you, it was, it's a much higher purpose. It's a much greater reason. It's a much more joy-inspiring thing that God did what he did for himself and not for you. That you're not the goal of the Bible. You're not the subject of the Bible. That Jesus is the subject of the Bible. It's all about Jesus. And, and when you realize that, that gives you more joy, more understanding, and a better, um, you approach God differently, more appropriately. So God's grace to save you was not something for you to hold on to. It's something to share with others, to be received and then to be released. So we are here in this place being equipped under the word of God in order to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, namely to, to, to pour out into others. This church exists to proclaim the excellencies of Christ Jesus until Christ becomes all and in all. And there's a reason for that. Because there are some places in Piqua, Miami County, in Sydney, Shelby County, and wherever you live, where Jesus isn't all and in all. And Jesus deserves to be all and in all, in all places. And so the, the idea is that God would save you and send you to those places where the gospel is not being preached in order that the gospel would be preached so that Jesus does become all and in all. He makes Jesus all in all in you so that you can go and get Jesus all in all wherever you are. John, Pastor John Piper would put it this way. Missions exist because worship doesn't. That's, that's the motivation for missions. I had to learn this not terribly long ago, a few years ago. Pastor Matt will remember this. Because for me, missions was always a, a kind of a back burner kind of thing. It was important. I would say, if you ask me, I'd say it's important. But I never really understood it, and I never really felt... God's pull on it. Because I always thought that the motivation for missions was a desire to see people saved. So if you're going to go be a cross-cultural minister, a missionary, the reason you go is because you love the people to whom you are going. And that's true. But that's not the greater motivation. Because how many of you know you can fall out of love with a people group? Am I right? God can give you a passion for people, but you can fall out of love for those people. The greater motivation for missions is not those people who need Jesus, though they do, and though that is a reason. The greater motivation is that Jesus deserves their worship, and Jesus deserves that someone would go to them and that Christ would be all in all in that place. That's the greater motivation. Jesus is the motivation, not the people who need Jesus. And so this was kind of a reframing in my mind uh, around missions. So Paul says... I was given grace, and I am to be a steward of God's grace. By now, you guys know my favorite verse in the entire Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And this is a wonderful verse because it explains the gospel, that God took your sin, which you deserved to go to hell for, and he lifted it off you and he placed it on Jesus instead. But that wasn't all. That God took the obedience that Jesus did in his life and living sinlessly on this earth. And he took that and he gifted it to you. 
He made this great exchange. It's my favorite verse in the Bible, but you know what's really sobering about that verse? is The very next verse is in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. It says that we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. That should sober every one of us right up. My greatest concern as a pastor is that the people who darken the door of this church would come in here and, and, and that they would receive the grace of God in vain. Meaning that they would flat out reject it, which of course would be receiving it in vain, but just as bad in my mind is receiving the grace of God and doing nothing at all with it. Wasting it. That is my dearest concern. And so I have every intention as your pastor to probe you with very uncomfortable, unsettling questions. Questions like, how are you wasting the grace of God in your life? While I let that, qu- that question settle over you, I want to tell you a story of two young men who did not waste the grace of God in their life. Two men, teenagers, who stewarded well the grace that God had given them. Their names were Johann Dober and David Nitschmann. In the early 1700s, in the town of Hernhut, Germany, the Lord had taken a a group of refugees from uh, Moravia, which is modern-day Czech Republic, who were kind of coming under some persecution, and they had to leave Moravia. And they came to Germany, and they found refuge under a wealthy man named Count Zinzendorf. And there were several families, and they began um, just living under Count Zinzendorf as refugees. And the Lord moved among the Moravians in the 1700s, and give, gave them a passion and desire to begin something uh, they called night and day prayer. And they would run these one-hour-long prayer sets back-to-back, 24 hours a day. Everyone volunteered to plug in to pray for one hour. They would pray, they would leave, the next group would come in to pray. And they did this around the clock. It lasted for 100 years, unbroken. And during those days, the Lord did mighty things among the Moravians. Namely, he emboldened them, impassioned them for world missions. And during one of those, well, just, to, just to, I think there's a statistic that illustrates it best. In the Moravian communities, in Hernot, Germany in the 1700s, the missionaries to laity ratio was 60 to 1, meaning for every person in the church, for every 60 people in the church, one of them went to missions, full-time missions. Just to put that into perspective, in Christendom today, it's about 5,000 to 1, laity to missionary. And so the Lord moved in a very powerful way among the Moravians, namely among these two young men named David 
and John or Johann. And they felt a calling to reach the African slaves in the Caribbean islands. Because as you know, if you know history, it was, it was a dreadful time in human history where people were being stolen from Western Africa and, and shipped across the Atlantic Ocean, mostly to the Caribbean islands and some into America. And the problem that Johan and David had was that it's illegal to r- reach these slaves. It's illegal. And this is because there was this deplorable idea that these people, these individuals, were property. And they belonged to slave owners, and therefore it was illegal for any person to speak to them because they're property. And so the solution that Johan and David came up with was this, teenagers, friends, teenagers. We'll sell ourselves into slavery on the chance that we might be able to reach some of the African slaves in the Caribbean islands. There's no other way to get to them. I'm just going to go into slavery. So they would set aside ambitions, say goodbye to their families, and set sail on a ship in order to go across the Atlantic Ocean to reach African slaves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Count Zinzendorf records, as they were pulling off port, they, they called back to their families with these words. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Meaning my life counts for nothing. What matters is that Jesus would be made much of among the African slaves. And if that means me giving up my family, my chance at raising babies, then I'm going to do it. Teenagers. Responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, rightly stewarding the grace that God had given to them. The mission of God was worth dying for because Jesus died for the mission of God. And these two young men did just that. Those two Moravian teenagers and the Apostle Paul, Cornerstone, that is not extraordinary Christianity. That's ordinary Christianity. That's the way every one of us ought to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Am I saying that everybody should sell everything that they own and board an airplane and go become a missionary in some country they didn't grow up in? That's not what I'm saying. That's not the witness of Scripture. But some will. But as your pastor, I want to do my part to help us to work through what this means, what this looks like in your life. And so in the final moments we have together this morning, I'm going to do what I can as your pastor to kind of help you work through the mission of God and what it looks like for you. So I have three points. You can write this if you've got your application card, your little connection card. You can write these on, and this is what I want you to take with you as you leave today. Every last one of us is called to be a goer and a sender. Now, let me make a distinction very quickly between global missions and local missions. Local missions is defined in my mind as the, the, the evangelizing of those who need Jesus, who are of similar or same culture as our own. So this would include any outreach effort of this church or 
crossing the cubicle, maybe not crossing a culture, but crossing a cubicle or crossing a cul-de-sac or crossing some kind of thing that starts with a C, crossing something, going to someone who needs Jesus. That's local missions. They speak your language. They look like you. They act kind of like you. Similar culture. That's local missions. That's different from, in my mind, than global missions. Global missions is reaching people who need Jesus who are of a different culture than the one you grew up with. This would be those who have a different language, who have a different culture, who live in a different place. That's global missions. And so with regard to local missions, here's just what here's what you need to know. Everyone goes, everyone sends. Everyone goes, everyone sends. Local missions Every believer, every follower of Jesus is called to local missions. There is no Christianity outside of evangelizing the lost. That's part of what you do as a follower of Jesus. Reach out to those who need Jesus. Preach the gospel. Share your faith. In addition, everyone who follows Jesus is a sender in local missions. You go to places where Jesus is not preached, like the cubicle across from you. You go where the gospel is not being preached, across the street, among your family, your friends. But you also support those who do as well. You're a goer and a sender. You send those. That would be like efforts in the church that we send out evangelism. We do kind of evangelistic outreach. That's what you do. You support that thing. Okay. You may not go as a part of that, Specifically, but you, you send those who, who do. So you're a goer and a sender with regard to local missions. With regard to global missions, it's a little bit different in that not everyone is called to be a goer. Not everyone is called to sell their home, sell their property, sell everything they own, and then board an airplane and go into the Middle East and tell people about Jesus. Not everyone's called to that. There are Paul-type missionaries who go into cultures who don't know Jesus, and there are Timothy types who equip people who do go. Okay, so there's different kinds. With that being said, with regard to global missions, everyone is a sender. Everyone. This means that you're to be generous with your resources in order that you would give into the function of the church, which is to equip those and, 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 and give funds and give what is necessary to equip people to go into those places. It may not be a, glo- a goer to global missions, but you have to be a sender. John Piper, again, he would put it like this. There's really only three responses to global missions. Either you can go, or you can send, or you can be disobedient. That's it. So be a goer and a sender. Next point on your application card. A heart with love for God will steward the grace of God. A heart with love for God will steward the grace of God. This is where it's going to get a little squirrely. To steward the grace of God in your life rightly, we must also steward the grace of, uh, steward the resources of God in our life. Let's say that again. To steward the grace of God in our life, we have to steward the resources of God in our life. By resources, I mean four things. Time, 
money, energy, and abilities. All four resources. That's the accumulation of your life. Time and money and energy and abilities. Those are the resources that God has given to you to steward for the sake of his mission. And how you spend those four things really tells the story of your life, doesn't it? How you spend your time and your money and your energy and your abilities. So, like it or not, if someone writes a biography of your life, those are the four headings of the biography of your life. I mean, imagine if somebody, imagine if you hired someone to write a biography on your life up to this point, from the day you were born to up to this point, and they were only allowed to look at those four things. How Matt spent his time, his money, his energy, his abilities. What would that book be like? How many of you would be terrified to read that book? I'll put my hand straight up in the air. I would be terrified to read that book. Don't ever show me that book, ever. Because I'm going to come in with a pen and a marker and just be scratching stuff out. I really didn't spend that much time on that. No way I spent that much money on that. But nevertheless, like it or not, the reality is we are to steward those four resources for the sake of the kingdom. Many of us, I'm afraid, many Christians, approach the stewardship of those resources like you you take two of them, you you take, let's say, you take your energy and your ability, and you use those things to make money, to spend, to spending time on comfort. Isn't that how it usually works? You spend all your energy and all your abilities to earn some money so that you can spend your time on comforts. But you understand, as a follower of Jesus, we aren't, wor- we aren't to work to get. We're to work to give. We're to be channels. It doesn't make sense, as a follower of Jesus, that you would work to get more comforts. You aren't working to work. You, work. you aren't working to get. You're working to give. And listen, Cornerstone, I can't tell you how this works in your life. I won't give you rules. I won't make it that easy for you. This is between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. I won't give you rules. I won't tell you it's appropriate to have this house, but not this one. I can't tell you that. I'm not going to. The reason is rules can be followed where the heart is not there. You can do it for all the wrong reasons. I'm not going to give you rules. That's too easy. This is between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't tell you what that looks like in your life. This is something that you're going to have to take to the Lord every time you make a significant decision in your life. And even sometimes when it's insignificant. I can't tell you what's appropriate with your time and your money and your energy and your abilities. That's between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. But I can tell you that how you spend those four things is about your heart. See, when, when preachers preach about this, it feels like money. It's not about money. It's about your heart. It's about your heart. 
That's why I say a heart within love, with love for God will steward the grace of God because you adopt his purposes, you adopt his, his, his mission, you adopt what's important to him. And so when you approach resource management in your life, you have to run it through that filter. Last point, and I'll wrap. God is calling us all to live conservatively and to give liberally. To live conservatively and to give liberally. So here's what I can tell you as your pastor. Live little, give big. With regard to those four things, live little and give big. Some of you might want a number. Some preachers preach a number. Some, pe- some, some preachers preach on a tithe, 10%. Let me tell you why I think that that's wrong. Because the only number in, new, in the New Testament, there's no number in the New Testament less than 100 with regard to resource management. For some of us in here, the Bible calls us to give generously. So for some of us in here, 10%, that might be a generous number. When you sat down, do your money, do your finances, do your time, do your energy, all that stuff, 10% spent on the mission of God might be a generous number. But you know, there may be some folks whom God has blessed with a tremendous amount of resources for whom 10% is sinfully low. And that's why you'll never hear me preach on a tithe. Because I'm not Jesus, and I'm not the guy to tell you how much is generous and how much is not. Some of us may be generous with our money, but stingy with our time, selfish with our time, selfish with our energy. Or maybe you're generous with your time, but you're, you're selfish with your money. I can't tell you what's right or wrong. But I can tell you, you're to give generously into the mission of God. I'll tell you what this looks like in my life in a way that I miss it on a regular basis. Just a little bit of confession. I have a tendency to spend two of my resources, energy and ability, on this. On preaching the word and teaching, leading the church. And I spend so much of it that there are times when I get home at night, I'm spent. I have no energy to spend pastoring my children and my, and my wife. And that's poor stewarding of the grace of God in my life. Now, I, I, I'm a firm believer that every man of God is called to go to bed dog-tired. If you are appropriately stewarding the resources that God has placed into your life, you'll have spent it on what God has called you to do in pastoring your family and pastoring your children and pastoring your grandkids and pastoring those who are in your social circle so that you get to that place where you are just dog-tired at night. If you're spending yourself on the kingdom, you're going to be tired. That, I think, is godly. But there are times when I spend too much on things that I ought not to, and, I, and the people that hurt the most— are my wife and my kids. And so you know, you know, when you guys are praying for me, I appreciate the prayers. Really, I do. But also pray for my babies. Uh, being a PK, you get a target on, on your chest. And being a pastor's wife is not, 
I walk in the park, so I'm told. Anyway, I'm going to wrap up. We're running out of time here. Let me wrap it up. Corey, Mary, you guys can come forward. Um, Brothers and sisters, listen. Steward well the grace of God in your life. That's what this is all about. Stewarding well the grace of God. So this is what I can say to you this week. Take some time in the weeks to follow and look at yourself in the mirror. Not, not the mirror in the bathroom, the mirror of God's word. And see how you're stewarding the grace that God has given to you. How you are appropriating your resources for his glory and your good. Paul would give himself for the sake of the church. Are we willing to do the same? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to serve communion. But we're going to do it a little differently than we did it last time, last couple of times. I'm not going to, I'm going to pray over the elements and I'm going to go sit down. Corey and Mary are going to play a song. And as you feel led, come forward, take the juice, take the cracker. And in that moment, bear your heart with the Lord. How are you stewarding his grace in your life? Coming to the Lord's Supper is a sobering thing. It shouldn't be taken lightly. If you are not a follower of Jesus, then I would ask that you would not take of the juice and crackers. Nothing mystical or magical about juice and crackers. It's a representative of what Jesus did for us in giving his life and shedding his blood for our sake. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then I would ask that you take a moment or so as they're singing that you would check your heart before the Lord, repent of any sins that are there. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, when he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, I pray for everyone in this room, for those who don't know Jesus, that they would respond to the gospel and repent of their sins and turn and put their faith in Jesus. For those who are followers of Jesus already, saved eternally, I ask that they would have a moment with you to check their hearts. And I pray, Holy Spirit, in the gentle, quiet, and sometimes piercing way in which you do, you would give us wisdom and how to steward your grace in our life as we live for your glory and your renown. In Jesus' name.